Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Do you have questions about the healthcare industry? Welcome to 19 Conversations. Today, we're asking Richard Torbett, the Chief Executive of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, the ABPI, who decides the price of a medicine. I'm Sue Saville. Thank you for joining the conversation. Richard, welcome. Hello, Sue. Well, in this situation, from COVID-19 vaccines to new cancer medicines, gene therapies, even orphan medicines, there's always a debate then about the price of a medicine. So how do companies arrive at the price for a new medicine? Well, it's an incredibly important topic, and it's one that we're very happy to talk about. And the first thing to say is it's not entirely down to the company to decide um, a price of medicine. Usually there is a very detailed conversation between a company uh, and a health system. And in particularly in Europe, those health systems are usually very large, very powerful health systems. And it's essentially a negotiation. And that negotiation plays by different rules in different member states of the European Union. But it is a conversation between the company and and the health system. So what what comes into it? the companies look companies will start the conversation by by looking at a number of different factors first and foremost is to try and assess exactly what value is that medicine going to add what clinical value does it offer the patient um, what does it allow the health system to do differently what benefits uh, will it bring to society and it will try its best to quantify those benefits to patient health system and society and have that analysis feed into the pricing conversation. But it'll also look at things like what are competitors doing? Um, even in branded pharmaceutical markets where uh, companies that have invested often billions of uh, dollars and euros into researching and developing new medicines will be competing by with other uh, therapies in the, in the class and certainly the price that uh, that prevails in the market is is something that companies will look at very closely because it will constrain uh, their ability to to get those medicines to patients it will that competitive process actually works and and delivers value they'll look at clinical practice which differs country by country uh, you could have one country that would very readily use a new innovation very quickly in a large number of patients You may have a clinical practice in another country that would use it more slowly or maybe after two or three other therapies have been tried in advance. Um, Critically, of course, affordability and the ability to pay. So countries absolutely are very sensitive to the fact that different countries have different levels of wealth and ability to pay. Um, uh, And and that absolutely needs to come into it. Uh, And finally, of course, um, the sort of system requirements and rules. So, you know, how uh, where I'm sitting in the UK, uh, authorities would look at the value of medicines will be very different from how that is examined in in France or Germany or Spain, for instance. Uh, so it's so all of these you, things together. As you suggest there, it's, it's very complex. And in your own position with your economics background and you've worked in the pharmaceutical industry, you work for indus- industry, you've worked for governments at national and European level, You've got a great overview. So why can't some of that complexity be made more transparent so people have a a clearer idea about R&D costs, for instance? Yeah, it's a a really important question. And and I I think transparency can help in a number of of circumstances. And, you know, of course... um, 
you know, it's a very uncomfortable position to ever argue against transparency. Transparency always feels like the right thing to do. But, you know, when you're really looking at the detail, you have to try and understand, you know, where does it, where does it encourage the right behaviours? Where does it encourage better value? And where does it potentially work against that? So certainly, you know, in generic older medicines, uh, competitive commodity markets, you absolutely need transparency of prices to be able to, um, you know, really get the best best possible value. When it comes to R&D costs, this is a really interesting one because, you know, we often, uh, the request often comes in, you know, can't pharmaceutical companies make their R&D costs more transparent? You'd add then, you know, a percentage on top of that and there's your price. Well, you know, I would say, you know, you really have to look at, is that really desirable and is it is it possible? And on the desirability side of things, well, you know, what we really want is to create a system where companies are encouraged to make better medicines that work better for patients and to make those medicines as efficient as possible. Now, you know, if you base the price of the medicine on the cost of R&D, you'd have a higher price for a medicine that was produced more inefficiently and a lower price for a medicine that was produced very efficiently and got to patients very quickly. Um, what it doesn't tell you at all is how well the medicine works. Um, so that's at its core, the main reason why we stick to value-based pricing, because at the end of the day, we think that better medicines, the ones that work better for patients, deserve a better price. So you touched there on, on the differential pricing across Europe, and, and that creates sometimes this suspicion. You might find that the, the price is confidential or the price quoted uh, in the media is different from the price actually paid. Why? Why are those the case? Well, again, it's... Um you know, it's very uncomfortable that, uh, you know, the whole discussion around this is very uncomfortable for everybody, including and even especially the pharmaceutical companies, because at the end of the day, pharmaceutical companies put uh, the, 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 the total amount of money that is spent on research and development every year is $200 billion at the moment globally, which is a staggering effort to try and bring medicines to patients. And most of that fails, of course, because that's the nature of the scientific process. Now, at the end of the day, companies do this because they want to get medicines to patients. And um, the pricing discussions that we get into have to tailor those prices to the individual circumstances of the countries where we are trying to um, trying to reach access deals. And so, you know, there's we, in order to um, get the right price for the right country and the right with the right clinical practice and the right circumstance. It's very important that that conversation can happen without fear of confidential prices, or, or without fear of, of 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 prices that you might agree with one country that is perhaps using the medicine very effectively is perhaps poorer than many other countries. If that price is used inappropriately um, by being referenced by another country, if it's published. Uh, it'll be a race to the bottom. So a company is unlikely to be able to lower its price enough in a poorer country to ensure access if that transparent price is then copied by richer countries around the world, because that would bring everything down. You know, pharmaceutical industry is fundamentally in favour of differential pricing based on value and based on affordability. So what then is the role of the health system in that differential pricing? 
So I think, you know, it's incredibly important. Like I say, I mean, you know, in the vast majority of cases, they are the single biggest, if not only, customer in a country. So, you know, just as the company, if they have a new innovation that is protected by a patent, they will be a monopoly on that very specific technology, although they will have competitors in in the class. The, the health system is in itself a monopsony purchaser. They are a very powerful purchaser. So they have a responsibility to obviously work with the company, um, you know, to, to get the right price as well. Uh, and they have a responsibility to ensure that that price is um, in keeping with how they would use the medicine and is in keeping with the long-term objective of allowing investment to continue. Because at the end of the day, there are an awful lot of diseases that are still not treatable. Um, you know, many, many particularly rare conditions are still not treatable today. Um, and uh, so we need to keep the system going. Um, and I, But I also think there is a, a solidarity point here as, as, as well. And, and this does come into... Um, you know, particularly the European conversation where, you know, if we want to have proper differential pricing and lower prices in countries um, that need them, then uh, candidly, the richer countries can't all accept or, or can't all expect the same, the same, the same price. So I think there's a, there is an issue around, you know, I think fairness and solidarity on the, on the health system side, just as much as there is on the company side. And there certainly is on the company side too. But isn't there a risk that with that pricing differential that some patients might not have access? Surely the pricing is is fundamental to making sure patients can, can actually have the medicine. Yeah, I mean, look, price is absolutely um, a, a critical part of that conversation around access. But it's I think it's really important to say that it is not by any means the only factor that results in uneven access around uh, the European Union. Um, there are multiple reasons why uh, we have uh, an imperfect access environment today, and, and those those range from, you know, slow regulatory processes in countries. We've got uh, processes around market access and assessment of medicines that are sometimes delayed. They're duplicative. We have duplicative evidence assessments. Uh, local formulary decisions sometimes uh, get in the way of of access just as much as 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 price really. So I think, you know, I think it would be. Um, you know, it would be wrong for me to say that price is not doesn't play a role here. Of course it does, but it's certainly not the only factor. And I think there is a real appetite on the part of the industry to really make sure that we have a dialogue with all stakeholders to try and address all of the multiple issues that get in the way of a patient getting access to medicines. And you're, of course, someone who's been involved in those negotiations of medicines framework agreements with a number of governments. You touched there on on some of the, the challenges, the barriers in the road, as it were. What, what would you most like to see changed to give better access? So, you know, the first thing, the first step really getting to first base in all this is to have, uh, you know, a really open multi-stakeholder dialogue at the European level to lay all of these issues out objectively. And it really has to be objective. I mean, look, we we understand as an industry why there is so much emphasis on on the price of medicines. And it's quite right that the industry is held to account. It's absolutely appropriate that we are challenged and that we have to demonstrate the value of our medicines and that we also have to step up and we have to look at equity issues around around Europe. Um, but, you know, but we will not make progress um, in, in this debate unless we 
you know, and, and frankly, unless unless we have a more in, more inclusive, more multifaceted conversation so that we can really try to get to some of the root causes of, of access and some of the root causes why we don't have as much differential pricing as we would like to have in Europe. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, you know, you, you know, you, there are real reasons why uh, and barriers why companies find it very difficult to to price as differentially as they perhaps would want to do. Um, and that includes uh, issues around international reference pricing, which, um, you know, which sometimes get in the way. But yeah, getting to that first place is making sure there's a dialogue. And where, and where we do have dialogue, invariably, we can get to better solutions. And that's a very interesting point there, Richard, that you make, that actually this differential pricing is desirable in, in many areas. Perhaps from the consumer's point of view, we would think we should all be paying the same price so that we all c- can get the medicine at the same price. But in fact, you're saying differential pricing gives better access. Well, look, you know, if you widen the lens outside of Europe, um, there are many parts of the world that even if you gave away the medicine at cost, um, it wouldn't get it, the countries wouldn't be able to afford it. In fact, even if you give away the medicine for free, sometimes there is so little investment in health infrastructure and uh, facilities and nurses and, and what have you, it still won't get to patients. So, you know, looking at it from a global perspective, globally tiered pricing is incredibly important to get to as fairer distribution of access, distribution of medicines as we possibly can. Um, the only way you can price medicines very cheaply in very poor countries or even give it away for free is if the richer countries are uh, recognising that they have a greater role to play in supporting that enormously high-risk innovation ecosystem that develops medicines of tomorrow. Like I say, those $200 billion that we spend every year on, on research and development, that's ra- those are raised in private markets um, you know, there are investors like you and me through our pension funds will be investing in a range of companies, including those putting money into research and development. Um, and at the end of the day, there needs to be a return for those investors that are putting money in. If not, the money won't be there. And if the money's not there, we won't have the R&D. And if we don't have the R&D, we don't have medicines of the future. If we don't have medicines of the future, there's an awful lot of diseases that actually the science ought to be able to deliver solutions. And it won't unless we can somehow keep the system going. And what about trying to price then a vaccine in a pandemic? Is there a different mechanism for dealing with something where you're trying to vaccinate in effect everyone? I think, look, you know, the the vaccines, uh, current COVID-19 situation is, of course, uh, the focal point for pretty much the whole industry right now. Um, you know, there's been the most extraordinary redeployment of resources in every part of the world from the pharmaceutical industry to throw its weight behind developing new um, vaccines and therapeutics for, for COVID-19. I would say, again, it's a good job that we have such an enormously uh, eager pharmaceutical industry to get to grips with this disease. Um, uh, Nature, uh, the Nature publication recently highlighted that uh, over 70% of the COVID-19 vaccines that are being investigated are being led by private sector pharmaceutical companies and 100% of the vaccines, which includes some candidates that are being uh, developed in universities 
will require ultimately the pharmaceutical industry to be involved in manufacturing, regulation, distribution, ultimately getting them to patients. Um, I think we've had a really clear message from the industry that there's a very deep sense of responsibility in all of the companies involved to make sure that vaccines are priced responsibly. Uh, you know, we have supported um, uh, and, and indeed we're a co-founder of the ACT Accelerator program, which is the access to COVID uh, tools, uh, partnership between the WHO, Gates, Welcome and others. Uh, and indeed, you know, through the uh, multilateral um, uh, uh, processes that have been set up to try and ensure fair access, particularly COVAX. You know, the industry is very much part of these conversations. We want to see fair access. Companies are, you know, companies are manufacturing at massive scale before they know whether these things are going to work. Um, and, you know, we are we are part of a global effort here. And in terms of that, you're putting these efforts from the pharmaceutical industry, as you say, into trying to get equitable access for COVID vaccines. What impact has all of this had on the pharmaceutical industry trying to bring other medicines to market? Are they being delayed in the pipeline? Well, yes, uh, is the simple answer to that one um, for, for a variety of reasons. Well, two, two main reasons. I mean, one is is there's genuinely been an enormous redeployment of resource into COVID, into the COVID effort. And, and that's, you know, a very unusual situation and it has to happen. And we've thrown our shoulder into it. The second piece is, of course, um, it, it, in order to develop medicines, a large part of our work is in clinical trials, uh, which require engagement from health systems and, and health professionals. And, you know, in most countries of the world, the health systems have really struggled to prioritise the very urgent needs of, of COVID patients. You know, if you have to have your nurses and doctors redeployed into ICU to deal with um, COVID patients, you're not able to administer clinical trials. So there's been a huge slowdown in clinical trials over the um, over the crisis period over the last few months. And of course, you know, we're eager to get that back, but we're not looking to do it quicker than the health systems are reasonably able to do it in a safe and sustainable way. And so, you know, we're, we're looking to support health systems as they try and get back on their feet, get clinical research going again. And as you say, the impact on health systems from their perspective, the COVID costs uh, of the healthcare systems across Europe will be so huge. Does that, in effect, drive down the price of future medicines because health systems simply cannot negotiate to pay a higher price? So I think, um, you know, I think there's there's no doubt that um, there's no doubt that countries around the world have had to bear an enormous economic cost of of not just treating COVID, but treating the consequences of COVID in their economies through, you know, keeping workers going through furloughing schemes and what have you. And I think there's no doubt that we are in for a challenging economic time in some ways. I'm sure there will be a debate about that. Um, and I'm sure that that will lead to pressures on budgets. However, what I would say is, you know, I think in a global emergency like this is a very different type of government expenditure to uh, to a sort of typical economic slowdown and you know I think it, it would be I think it would be uh, you know really important to be cautious um, not to undermine what has been 
A, an important source of solution for COVID and B, an important source of solution for future diseases. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we have very, very robust conversations about price with health systems around the world. There is a tough negotiation all the time. Um, companies will always step up to try and maximise access to patients. Um, wherever we get to economically out of this COVID crisis, you know, I think we will obviously be making the case that the pharmaceutical industry is a critical industry for the future. It will deliver future growth uh, and it will ultimately help with future preparedness for pandemic and other health crisis situations. And if we haven't had, honestly, if we haven't had the starkest possible reminder of the consequences for the economy and society in a very deep way of getting healthcare wrong, then, you know, we've really missed a lesson here. Richard, thank you very much indeed for those insights. It's been really, really helpful. And thank you very much for listening to 19 Conversations. If you liked this podcast, please click the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode. And please leave a rating and a review. Until the next episode, we'd invite you to join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag questions inspire solutions. Bye for now. 